the late 60s ushered in an explosion of violence into the American consciousness. Thanks to the growing number of family televisions, assassinations, war footage, and brutal murders became expected nightly viewings. And, as art always does, pop culture began to reflect this new norm. No longer were audiences content to escape into their entertainment. While the 50s and early 60s sought to show us how utopic life could be, the 70s ushered in an era of filmmaking that reveled in its raw, realistic depiction of the darker sides of humanity. And by the 1972 Oscars, the Academy was warming up to the idea of honoring such films. Films like The French Connection and A Clockwork Orange shocked audiences with their inclusion. The other nominees, while not nearly as violent, still signaled a change in audiences' appetites. Nicholas and Alexandra, The Last Picture Show, and even the lone musical on the list, Fiddler on the Roof, all dealt with themes of loss and hopelessness, a drastic departure of the Technicolor fantasies being nominated only a few years before. In 1964, Bob Dylan announced that the times, they were a-changin'. And by 1972, the Academy had finally caught up. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races and give ourselves the authority to determine if the Academy got it right. I am Devin. I'm Kyle. And we are your hosts for this evening slash morning slash whenever you're listening to this. And today we're going to be talking about the 45th Academy Awards that were given out in 1972 for the films released in 1971. Uh, so what was going on in 1971? I'm not sure. I don't know either. I wasn't there. You can't make this joke every time. I know, but it's, it's like really getting old. True every time. Yeah. Well, for sure. Well, not every time, but. Yeah, most of the time. Well, for other people like us, or maybe people just need the reminders about what was going on in 1971. So Nixon was the president. Some ongoing stuff. The Cold War was happening. The space race was going on. And the Vietnam War was also happening. Good times all around. On January 2nd of 1971, a ban on radio and television cigarette advertisements went into effect in the United States. On January 12th, All in the Family debuted on CBS. On January 25th, in Los Angeles, Charles Manson and three of his female family members were found guilty in the 1969 Tate LaBianca murders. You just wanted to include that, didn't you? Well, I honestly think that that's important. I mean, like, we're talking, like, in the intro, I'm talking about how violence was seeping into people's no, things. No, for and the sure. Manson for sure. murders were a big part of that. On May 3rd, a Harris poll claimed that 60% of Americans were against the Vietnam War. On June 13th, the New York Times began to publish the Pentagon Papers. And on June 30th, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Pentagon Papers could be published, rejecting government injunctions as unconstitutional prior restraint. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the post. Yes, I included that because it is relevant to <laughs> last year's Oscar nominee, <laughs> The Post. <laughs> Although, as this pointed out, the New York Times is the one that started publishing it. It's weird to me that that movie was about the Post. But anyway. Oh, yeah, because they got, they got it they second. Want, yeah. Well, they were, yeah, but they were the ones that were like, weren't going to print it, right? They were the, like, the New York Times were publishing them, and then they got in trouble. The government was the like, government, stop it. The government it. stepped in, yeah. And then the Post was started doing it. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, well, that's a boring movie for the, if it was the New York Times. <laughs> I guess. 
On July 3rd, Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, was found dead in his bathtub in Paris, France. Mm, while taking a bath, huh? Yep. And there's no way to go. Well, there's worse ways to go. Like on a toilet? <laughs> yeah. Um, and in August of 1971, the unemployment rate peaked at 6.1%. Hmm. So overall, some uh, sad days. Earlier you said fun stuff. That was a joke. Oh, okay. Because I believe that was in reference to like the Vietnam War. Yeah, it was. I was it's like, wow, fun. okay. That wasn't fun for anybody. <laughs> you wouldn't know that. You weren't alive. No, from what I've heard, people weren't having fun in the Vietnam War. They sure weren't. All right. So 1971 in movies. Not a lot of fun facts about movies in that year. So here are the top 10 <clears throat> movies in 1971. Okay, there's no fun facts? Well, nothing I found interesting. Okay. I mean, I mean, I believe you. I'm going to take your word for it. I'm not going to do the research. Sure. <laughs> so the number 10 movie of 1971 was Bednoms and Broomsticks. Doesn't that sound fun? It's a Disney movie. Number nine was A Clockwork Orange. Wow. Number eight, Carnal Knowledge. Number seven, The Last Picture Show. Six, Summer of 42. Uh, Five, Billy Jack. Wow. My dad was just talking about going to see Billy Jack the other day. He, like, he loved the Billy Jack movies. I've never even heard of it. Oh, yeah. It's just this like dude who kicks ass in like the, the desert. I don't know. You know what? I'm not going to claim to know what it was about, but it's like very much still that like easy rider, like That's counterculture fun. type of movie. Mm-hmm. It was a huge hit, though. The soundtrack apparently was great. This is according to my dad. You know, he might just be like having false well, he was there. memories, but he, he loved was it. there he and loved we were it. not. He was, a, I think he said he was in like middle school or grade school. I don't know. Sorry, Billy Jack. Billy Jack. I just didn't know. I never knew it was a hit. I mean, like, apparently, damn. at least the first one was. Right. Like, I don't think it has like stars. Do you know? So to be yeah. like number five is pretty crazy to me. Yeah. Well, speaking of guys just kicking ass, number four, Dirty Harry. Number three, Diamonds Are Forever. Number two, Oscar winner, The French Connection. And number one, Oscar nominee, Fiddler on the Roof. Awesome. Nicholas and Alexandra not on that list? No. Weird. I think they're, that's the only nominee that wasn't right. in the top ten. Right. Last picture show. No, last picture show is number seven. Oh, damn. Really? Yep. Different time, man. Yeah. Really. Very different time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was just listening to the... I'm going to give a shout out to the Music Box Theater podcast. Woohoo! Shout outs. Uh, yeah, they were just talking about the whole culture of theaters that only had like one screen. Like They could get screwed if like they had to put out a flop because that that's what the contract said that, you know, that week or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So that's why theaters started doing like an additional theater... Oh, that's like, funny. like a smaller screen even. So yeah. They would move the flop over to that smaller screen. And make more money on And try to make more money on the next big thing coming out. So they wouldn't break any contractual agreements. That's smart. That's where, like, obviously the multiplex eventually came mm-hmm. from. But, I mean, especially then when Hollywood started putting out more movies, like, you needed to adapt. But, mm-hmm. sorry. Music Box Podcast. Uh, Music Box Theater Podcast? Music Box Podcast? You I don't know what they want to go. put terms into by. Google, it will come up probably. Right. Maybe. Music Box Theater, Chicago, Illinois, great place. Absolutely. Um, But no, I wanted to... Shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. What was the number three? The number three movie in 1971? Four. Number three was Diamonds Are Forever. Yes. So that's, I think, for torture. 
every year there's a James Bond movie. I'm just going to pick that for our supplemental. Oh, yeah. And we get to watch. Yeah. All the, the James Bond movies. And then we movies? will also catch up with all the James Bond movies. <laughs> I mean, I'd honestly be fine with that. No. Oh, my God. You're supposed to be annoyed by it. I like James Bond movies. You haven't seen enough James Bond movies. That's fair. I haven't. <laughs> you like, your favorite James Bond is Pierce Brosnan. He is. That's ridiculous. I really like Pierce Brosnan. He was my first James Bond. Yeah. I think you've only had two. That's correct. <laughs> well, I mean, like, have you even seen any Sean Connery James Bond <laughs> yeah. or Roger Moore? You're giving, you're taking away all my George credibility Lizzie. as a movie expert. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really? You're just the podcasting expert, I'd say. So some film <laughs> debuts of 1971. A little research expert. I can research like no other. I like it. Looks good on you. Film debuts. F. Murray Abraham. And they might be giants. Carol Kane and Carnal Knowledge. Daniel Day Lewis. It's Sunday Bloody Sunday. It actually was an uncredited role. He was just like a kid. Oh, that's but awesome. Like, once he became famous, say, they like, like went. I know. I was like, that seems crazy. Mm-hmm. But they went back. He, I don't think it was like a speaking role. But mm-hmm. and Sybil Shepherd in the last was his picture character show. mute. Is that why it wasn't a speaking role? He was just. <laughs> he was so method. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was just taking that on. Um, he memorized everybody else's line though I'm sure mm-hmm. I'm sure he was very prepared mm-hmm. so some stuff about the ceremony it was hosted by a it wasn't really hosted it was kind of just like presented by a group of people okay including Helen Hayes Alan King Sammy Davis Jr. and Jack Lemon. okay it's different I feel like they've done that a few times where instead of like having a host, they just have like a bunch of actors. I mean, they tried it out a few times. Yeah, it never works. Yeah. But they continue to do it. Uh, what else happened during that ceremony? Well, this was the first time in the history of the awards in which the nominees were shown on a superimposed picture while being announced. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, we come to see his regular affair. Yeah. Interesting. It was the first time. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, at the ceremony, Charlie Chaplin received an honorary award for his incalculable effect he has had in making motion pictures the art form of this century. Is this when he, like, cried? Yeah, I'm sure he, he cried. He was, like, old and... Chaplin, who had been living in exile in Switzerland yeah. for 20 years, came back to the United States to remarket his older films and to receive this award. When introduced to the audience, Chaplin received a 12-minute standing ovation, the longest in Academy Awards history. Amen. Why was he exiled? What? Remember, I, I, we talked about that when we were talking about uh, the uh, great dictator. But essentially, what's his face? Went after him during the whole, like, Red Scare uh, McCarthy was kind of going after him, labeling him as a communist. And because so essentially like he had dual citizenship in England and he went to England and basically they were like, you can't come back here mm. after he had left. And I mean, I think he probably I don't think I think he was like ex- exiled. And then even after things cooled down, I think he was still upset. And so he just didn't right, come right, back. Right. And, That's interesting. So yeah. thank you for reminding us, Devin. Yeah. Go back and listen to that episode, too. That's uh, season one, 1941. Cool. Also, the ceremony. So, Fiddler on the Roof, The Last Picture Show, and The French Connection East each had eight nominations going into the ceremony. French Connection won the most with five. Fiddler on the Roof won three, and The Last Picture Show won two. Wow, okay. So yeah, so let's get into these nominees. First up, Nicholas and Alexandra by Franklin J. Schaffner. Released by Columbia Pictures. 
synopsis. Tsar Nicholas II, the inept monarch of Russia, insensitive to the needs of his people, is overthrown and exiled to Siberia with his family. Like, spoiler alert, the last bit of the sentence is like the last third of that movie. <laughs> like, yeah, but what are you getting this from? IMDb? IMDb, yeah. I don't think that's probably what they used back in 1971. No, they probably wrote like a giant paragraph <laughs> in 1971. They handed out packets before you, as you yeah. entered the theater. <laughs> yeah. Just for a little Russian history. I bring back my dad again he said he did go see a movie one time and they gave out pieces of paper that had some kind of backstory or some kind of information that they thought was you needed to enjoy the movie no, no 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 i forgot what he said it was now i don't know hmm. you know what tune in next week when i reveal whatever or not next week two weeks from now how are we doing the show again yeah <laughs> two weeks from now well no you can do it next week in our in our bonus episode I don't want to guarantee I will remember to ask him that information. So I think you have a better chance of remembering before we do this bonus one, before we do a whole nother year. Either in one or two weeks, you will find out. You're probably never going to find out. And if you really want to know, you, know, you should write to us right. at FYRpod at gmail.com and ask us, and then we'll tell you. In season 10, I will reveal it. <laughs> you gotta, we don't know when it'll be revealed, so just keep listening to every single oh, episode. Just in case, you're just right. Just in case just it gets in case. revealed. Yes. Do you want to know some facts about the movie Nicholas and Alexandra? You know what? Are they historical facts? They're facts. Facts are facts. Let's do it. Okay. So the film was based on Robert K. Massey's book of the same name. Oh, yeah. I fall asleep over here. What do you want? Don't judge. I have to I have to say if it's based on other material. Why did you give such a pause? That's why because I said Because you something. were like rolling your head back they don't see that they don't see that did you audience did you hear that they could tell (laughs) they could tell you're being disrespectful (laughs) i was was honestly can i be honest with you Mm -hmm. so you know i have a very large head i was Mm -hmm. truly just kind of relaxing it for a second while i knew you had to talk for a while okay honest to god that that's what (laughs) that's what i was doing i was not being rude all right. So the producer Spiegel tackled Nicholas and Alexander when he was shut out from working with director David Lean on Dr. Zhivago, which was also set against the backdrop of revolutionary Russia. Spiegel had alienated Lean when the two worked together on Lawrence of Arabia, and the producer constantly hounded the notoriously perfectionist director to finish the film on time. I guess that film went way over mm. on time. Uh, Although Robert Massey wrote the book upon which the film was based, he did not have complete information because the Soviet government would not permit the release of all relevant records. 20 years after the film debuted, the Soviet Union fell and the records of the Romanovs were released. Massey later wrote a continuation called The Romanovs, The Final Chapter. That's cool. I don't think they made that into a movie, though. No. That's really all the facts I have about Nicholas and Alexandra. That's it? Yeah. Wow. Nothing else? Nope. Really? Yep. You know, like holding on to a nugget somewhere? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like there would be a lot more information about that. No, I mean, like most of the, st- I mean, most of the stuff I was finding was like, these people were wanted for the parts and they didn't want to do it. Oh, you yeah. know, which I don't really find all that interesting. Yeah. And how much of that is honestly credible? You know, stuff like right. that happens in modern, like news cycles for movie and TV stuff. It's just like, doesn't, and then the actor will say like a year later, it's like, I, I read about it in the trades. Like, right. <laughs> like, I don't know what they're talking Like probably like some manager like submits a list of names right. and they look at it and then circle, like, you know what I mean? And then they're like, oh, they almost cast this person. Right, right. Like whatever. All right. So Devin, what are your thoughts on Nicholas and Alexandra? Um, that was a long movie. It, yeah. What did it clock at? How it is? 
It's like three hours. It's a little over three hours. Mm. Which is a lot over two hours. Yeah. Which is like an hour and a half longer than a movie should be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, I honestly, um, it was fine. I definitely like, I went through this phase (laughs) when I was like in middle school and high school or whatever, where I'd be like, came like a little obsessed with like European royalty. And anyway, I'm just saying I basically knew the story. And so it just felt like three hours felt like a long time just to get where you already knew it was going. Um, but it was fine. It was very like typical period drama, Oscar bait type stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't really have a lot to say about this movie. I thought it looked really good. I think that, you know, I, okay. I will say the thing that I said to you too. Like, I think that movie would have like improved tenfold if it had ended like one minute sooner. So if people haven't seen it or forgotten how it ends, like basically they like put the Romanovs in the room where they're going to be assassinated and then they're all like sitting there. They're not sure what's going to happen. And there's just like a clock ticking for like a really long time. It's actually like a legit, a full minute counts down on the clock. Wow. And, um, and then they come in and shoot them. But I think it would honestly have been so much better if it just cut before they came in and got shot. Right. Cause everybody knows, everybody knows right. that's what's going to happen. That would have improved the movie so much. I agree. Me. You know, that's what I think. I think, I, I don't know. When did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid come out? Was that later in the seventies? Was it right around this time? I feel like that's a later. It's in not the sixties though, right? Let me look real quick. But I mean like, yeah, I think that's one thing that benefited from that. We get to know these heroes throughout the course of the movie, and they have this impending doom, right? Mm-hmm. We know they die, but they don't show them die. Right. Because it's like, you know what? It's not necessary. The end of the day. Oh, it you came out I mean? in 1969, so it was before this. Oh, then they should have taken a note from yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Because <laughs> you're right. I think that would have been a much cooler ending. Like, a, like, yeah, a better ending. Something to at least talk about. Exactly. Instead of a poorly executed execution. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But it was fine. I also feel like it didn't really know the story it wanted to tell. It kept like, it spent like most of the time, obviously with the Romanov family, Right. but then they would go and spend like, especially in the later half, they would spend like extended time with the, the communists, I guess the like Bolsheviks or whatever. The rising up Lenin and whoever. Yeah. But really what did that add to the movie? The end? Right. I'm like, Okay, but it should have been a whole parallel thing. But then why? Yeah. I like what you said the other night. Is like why was it called Nicholas and Alexandra when it was like right? It wasn't really. It like wasn't a, really about, about them, them. <laughs> really at all. It's about the Romanovs being overthrown. Yeah, and this like really stupid kid they have. <laughs> it's about him too. He, dude, he's creepy, dude. It's like this is like, dude. They made the omen after watching this movie. Watching this movie, they're so creeped out by this kid. Did you think he was creepy? Yeah, I thought he was creepy. <laughs> I just thought he was a bad actor. Oh, my God. I thought he was like a 35-year-old man trapped in a little boy's body. <laughs> he was like a dark, like a dark man, too. Like someone who, who, uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, like dark in spirit. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, he reminded me of like, he had like the delivery of that kid in uh, Looper. Just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he's just like fucking shit up with his mind and like super quiet. And you're just kind of scared of him because he could kill you at any moment. That's what mm-hmm. the little kid reminded me of. 
Except he wasn't a danger to anybody in this movie because, like, no. if he just like bumped his head, he could die. Yeah, and you know what? Several points. I wish he would have. I was like, oh great, he's dead now and he's fine. Yeah, I know they made this like big deal about how he could just like die at any time. And then he was like always right. fine. Like, what do they have to fucking do with anything? What do their overall story have to do with this kid being? I know. Sick? I mean, like the point of that story is about the uprising and them being exiled, right? Like that's the interesting parts of yeah. that story. Yeah. And yet they spent so much time on like, is this child going to internally bleed to death? Right. Which isn't the he interesting part. He doesn't. He, he doesn't. He, well, he I mean, he probably does death bleed to death. Family. Yeah. <laughs> just in a different way. Yeah. He died just the same as everybody else, except for like Anastasia or whatever, who yes. apparently is alive and well. Conspirit. Well, I mean, not at this point. Oh, yeah. Conspiracy but, theory that she may have survived the See, that's the, the movie. I don't. Well, there's certainly movies about that. In fact, if it would have been five hours, but just gone in that direction, I would have been into <laughs> it. I think there's like an Ingrid Bergman movie called Anastasia. Really? Yeah, maybe we'll watch that at some point. Wait, Ingrid Bergman or Ingmar Bergman? Ingrid. Uh, less interested, but still <laughs> with you. Still with you. And then, of course, there's the animated Anastasia, which is a classic. Is that about it, too? Yes. Oh, yeah, you talked to me I about talked, that. I told you about I think that. I was, like, thinking Fantasia, and I was like... That's oh, not... that's very different. Is that even Disney? Fantasia is Disney. Anastasia is not Disney. Oh, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. It's like it's the one princess Man- movie that's not I think Disney. it's like that Mandela test. <laughs> Oh, yeah. those two fl- no, the Mandela know. effect or whatever. Yeah, Mandela effect, yeah. Dude, Sinbad was not in a movie called Shazam. Mind's blown. Yep. You heard it here first. <laughs> I think you and heard on, it elsewhere. Yeah, on every Facebook <laughs> clickbait article, too. Do you have right. anything else about I, You know, I have nothing to add. I, again, I think I like what you just said. It was fine. Um, doesn't really add anything. Never heard of it until we did right. this. Uh, and it's not like there's any, like notable names in no it yeah there's no like hollywood cinematic history really at all kind of no, involved with it's this just this weird little outlier exactly it really which is. i do think i mean i think it like looked really good i think the costumes set design sure. that kind of stuff was sure. great like period i mean i don't know if it was accurate right. or not but like it, well, looked, it good. looked accurate it looked very like 70s trying to be period <laughs> there you go you know, you oh my God, I'm yawning just talking about this movie. All right, well, let me tell you what other people I don't recommend. It. Oh, you don't? No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean. Spend three hours doing something else. Call For your sure. mom. For sure. So Rotten Tomato audience score of 78% and a critic score of 71%, which is fair. Uh, there's no, it's never been named to any notable lists or rankings of any kind. Um, top 100 movies, longest movies. <laughs> <laughs> and at the box office, it made... In U.S. and Canada, it made $7 million. Ooh. Inf- with that inflation or no? You know, who just said I was going to like look up what it yeah. would be today? Yeah, I forget to talk to you about that before we start every podcast. Well. Tune in next, next week. week yeah. <laughs> Moving on. The Last Picture Show, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, released by Columbia. Synopsis. In 1951, a group of high schoolers come of age in a bleak, isolated, atrophied West Texas town that is slowly dying, both culturally and economically. It was the comedy hit of the year. (laughs) Uh, It was adapted from a semi-autobiographical 1966 novel of the same name by Larry McMurray. McMurtry? Sorry, Murtry. That's a weird name. Which one is it? McMurtry. It's like M-U-R-T-R-Y. Or is that just how you spelled it on your notes? Well, it's how it is multiple times, so (laughs) (laughs) hopefully that's correct. (laughs) 
Uh, the film was shot in Larry McMurtry's small hometown of Archer City, located in North Texas. McMurtry had renamed the town Talia in his book. Bogdan- Let's just call him Larry. Sure. Bogdanovich renamed it Anarine for the film, a name chosen to correspond to the town of Abilene, Kansas, and Howard Hawks' Red River, which is the movie that is being, which is the last picture show in the film. Last picture show. Okay. You never had to say McMurtry's name again. McMurtry. Nope. It doesn't look like it's in here anymore. Lair Bear. The film was one of the first to use already popular recordings by original artists to score a film. All the film's music, except for the closing credits and the live band at the Christmas party, is played in the background on radios, jukeboxes, or on a portable radio player. According to Cloris Leachman, the cause of her dysfunctional marriage was that her husband was gay. She claims a scene between her coach and between her husband, the coach, and the team's quarterback would have revealed that implicitly, but because of budgetary reasons, it was never shot. Really? Is that interesting? I mean, it's more interesting than yeah. Did you were you led to believe that? No. I just assumed it was like just a loveless marriage. Yeah, but it makes sense that that's like a reason it was loveless. Right. Absolutely. In 1992, Bogdanovich re-edited the film to create a director's cut. This version restores seven minutes of footage that Bogdanovich trimmed down from the 1971 release because Columbia imposed a firm 119-minute time limit on the film. The original 1970... That seems very specific. The original 1971 cut is not currently available on home video. There are two substantial scenes restored in the director's cut. The first is the sex scene between J.C. and Abilene that plays in the pool hall after it is closed for the night. And then the other major insertion is a scene that plays in Sam's cafe where Genevieve watches while Sonny and a revved up Dwayne decide to take the road trip to Mexico. So basically it's the version that we saw. Yeah. But those, so those two scenes didn't exist. The the scene with the put in the pool hall was taken out originally. Yeah. Then how, I just feel like that hurts her character arc. Well, I guess like you had that him picking her up and then it cut to him dropping her off where she says, like, what a night. I never thought this would happen. Right. So I guess it just, like, implies that something happened. Well, and then she cries, and I get it. Yeah. It's just like, oh, okay. But, yeah, they didn't actually that have scene that scene. That scene works so well. It's just, okay. Yeah. Texasville is the 1990 sequel to The Last Picture Show based on McMurtry's 1987 novel of the same name. It's also directed by Bogdanovich from his own screenplay without McMurtry this time. The film reunites actors Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepard, Timothy Buttons, Cloris Leachman, Elaine Brennan, Randy Quaid, Sharon Ehrlich, and Brock Doyle. So basically the entire cast. Yeah, I don't know. You named every single one of them. Yep. (laughs) Sounds good. But I think it's interesting, like usually when you do a sequel, you know, 30 years, 20 years after the original, you don't, you don't get the original source material by the same person. You don't get the same director. You don't get all the stars, you know? No, very interesting for sure. Yeah. What did you think of the last picture show, Kyle? It was fine. No. (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't know. It's weird. I have to admit, I don't think I've run into this circumstance in this podcast yet. But I feel like I I I want to say I loved it, mm-hmm. but most mostly, I think I'm just like still processing it. Like mm-hmm. it, we, we've been so busy lately, like I haven't actually had time to really think about it or like read up on it or anything. But it's just like it wasn't what I was expecting at all. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, it felt very. I don't know, you know, it felt like a like a. Sp- what am I trying to say? I don't know. 
this, I don't okay, I don't know why this popped time it popped in my mind. Maybe it's because Texas or whatever, but it felt like kind of like a dazed and confused, right? Like mm-hmm. it was this set in this time, and although this spans way more years than just one night, like dazed and confused, like we just got a glimpse into these people's lives, and and it just felt very free flowing, like like a good novel, which was which is what right. it's based on, right? But like it just didn't feel like a typical movie. We had to draw a lot of our own conclusions. Mm-hmm. But these characters felt very real, real to life. Um, I, I, you know, I believed them. I know them. At the same time, like, I don't think it was, like, fantastic. But, like, I really loved what it, where it brought me to. But, again, it's just a movie, like, I, I think I still got to think about. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just one of those. I don't think I fully processed it. I felt like I wasn't ready for it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because, like, my like age-wise, like, like it kind of reminds me of how I felt about Tree of Life. Like, when I watched Tree of Life, I was like, oh, man, I really, you know, this is, like, technically great. Mm-hmm. Like, I enjoy the performances. I enjoy the camera. I was like, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Last Picture Show is not, not for me. It certainly wasn't made for me. But, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just. Yeah, I mean, I feel like coming-of-age stories are for everyone who's. <sighs> No, 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 no. I get, yeah, I get that, but I just don't know if that's where I'm at or need to be at while watching it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This is one of those movies that, like, it comes at a time and place in your life when you need it. Okay. But I just felt like we just watched it. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Is that crazy? No, I mean, that's your feelings. That's valid. Right. I I mean, mean, I'm probably, like, looking into it too much, but it's just one of those, I think I need to watch it again, like, right Mm -hmm. away, not... You know, now I want to eventually see that again. I could watch that again. It's just like I need to really mull it over because it just it wasn't what I, what I was expecting at all. Very solid performances. Um, I d- wish I knew more of Bogdanovich's work, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh, I wouldn't say there was definitely an inherent style or anything. Like it didn't feel. I don't know. It felt kind of like a more lax effort, or perhaps he was like a theater director or something. He got really good performances out of his actors, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel like I don't think it was that polished of a movie in general. That could just be me. I mean, I mean, as far as like again, as far as style, but we also just watched things like, you know, A Clockwork Orange, that which is like a hyper stylized movie. You know what I mean? So it's just this seemed very tame in comparison to that. But um, but yeah, what do you what do you think about Last Picture Show? Uh, well, I do agree with you where I think I'm still kind of, um, processing it in a way. Although I, I feel like I'm prepared to say that I did love it. I feel like it's the kind of movie I've personal. I, I really do like coming of age movies, like in general, that's a genre that I respond to a lot. And, um, and I think it's the kind of movie too, where it's not really about, it's not plot heavy, but it's very much character development. Yeah. So we're just like spending basically a year with these kids in their senior year of high school or whatever. And the other people in this town, it is very much like this small, small, small town. And it's dealing with like the dangers of small town. And especially when there's like nothing to do and people are bored and like the damage that they can cause because of that, which I think are all like interesting things to think about and to explore. And I think that the film does, a really good job of that. And it is one of those things where you keep thinking about it. And I think that the characters, the performances are great all around and the characters they're given such good material because there's some people that do some 
very bad things in this movie. But I don't ever feel like anyone is really like villainized in it. You know, you kind of understand why people are doing what they're doing. And maybe it's not the best reasons, but it's just such good character development that it all just feels so real. And you're just like along with it. And it does make you question those things in life, which I think is what good art is supposed to do. So sure. we know these characters in some aspects or have been these characters. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah. And I think too, there's that thing too, about when you're a teenager, you're just very self-centered, you know? So I think there's a lot of like that too, where these kids, they don't, there's just, there's nothing to do in that town, right. you know? So it's like, no, I think I think bad things happen. I, I think it captures adolescence in such a mm-hmm. in such a real way, and it's funny because even connects now. But this is obviously for a whole different generation at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's still so relatable to even what we went through in our adolescence. You know, mm-hmm. I find it. Yeah, I find it timeless. And yeah. I think it's shooting in black and white. It knew what it was doing. I don't think it was just necessarily trying to put a specific time and place, or even if it's like Bogdanovich when he was this age he saw everything in black and white mm-hmm. or anything like that. I don't think it was a stylistic choice. I think it was more like we're telling a timeless story. Well, let's the, tell it with a timeless medium. I'm glad you brought up the black and white thing. Cause that's another thing that I was thinking about too, is like, cause we just came off our last episode. We were watching movies from uh, 1951 or most of those are in black and white. And the way that this was shot in black and white, I did. I kept like thinking back to something like a place in the sun where it is, you know what I mean? Like it looked it looked so much like a movie from the fifties and yet there's, you know, nudity and there's other stuff. So in a way it almost felt like more shocking too. Mm, yeah, like more yeah, shocking yeah. than I would say like a lot of these movies that we watched this year had nudity and stuff. But I think that this felt more like, Oh, this is so weird because it feels like you're in a movie from the fifties and yet they're acting in a much more realistic way than teenagers and movies from the fifties ever did. Right, <laughs> so right. no, that's a good point. But I love that. I love that. Like kind of like, it just like startles you every time it happens then in this movie. Right. Right. No, I, I really, you're right. Cause when there's like some subject matter, like, you know, adultery between a high school student and yeah. a 40 year old mistress or yeah. Again, like the nudity from Sybil Shepherd. Well, even like the first scene where he's like with his girlfriend in the beginning and they're like making out in the car and then she just yeah. like takes off her shirt and I'm like, yeah. what is it? Like, right. No, but you're right. I don't think, I think yeah. that was for a purpose to like, let you know that like, yeah. You know, this is how we, if we look back and made a movie of our childhood at this age, you know, right. if, we, if we went back and made a movie of this childhood, we'd see it in black and white, but this would be what we're actually seeing. It right. wouldn't be like, everybody talking like this. And right. Right. And that's just it. It's like, I feel like people in the seventies, maybe were looking back in the fifties with like rose colored glasses in a way this was like, like maybe it was more innocent, but like, I don't think it was like teenagers right. were still teenagers. It's, oh, for <laughs> sure. For sure. Yeah. I think it, you know, it captures a beauty that like. I think American Graffiti did so well too, mm. you know, although American Graffiti comparison. was much more, uh, I think it was much more like cool nostalgia. Yeah. Um, but really told a very similar story, um, in a lot of aspects. Mm-hmm. In fact, I might prefer it. American Graffiti. But again, still, still, still processing, uh, yeah. the last picture show I mean, here. this is definitely a, it's not a feel good movie really. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Shout out. Also playing at the music box in two weeks. Oh, wait. Guys, six months ago, you missed it. It was at the music box. It was great. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, very, very cool. Um, yes. Give me some interesting facts or, or numbers. 
Sure. What did the critics say? Well, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 90% and a critic score of 100%. Wow. It's in the 100% club, huh? It is. It is. Cool. As for its legacy on the American Film Institute's anniversary list, um, it was ranked at number 95. It didn't make the original list, but okay. they reconsidered. It was number 95. And it was added to the National Film Registry in 1998. Nice. It was also named the best film of 1971 by Roger Ebert. Oh, he knew his stuff. He did. Rest in peace. Five years now. Oh, wow. And uh, at the box office, it made $29.1 And like I said, it was the seventh highest grossing film of the year. Which is crazy because that movie was probably made for little to no money. Yeah. Because I do feel like, too, like it's not like they had big names in it either, you no. know? Oh, yeah. That was Simple Shepard's first movie, which I've already mentioned, but now I've mentioned again. Yeah. So nice. You said it twice. Yep. She's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And she's a good actress. Mm-hmm. All right, next up, a little singing and dancing. <laughs> Woohoo. But they- enough about the French connection. <laughs> that, was, that would have been better if it was a clockwork orange. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> Damn, that's fucked up, Devin. I'm just saying. <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof, directed by Norman Jewison, released by United Artists. <laughs> Synopsis. Can we just point out, this is a... This oh, wait. A... wait. I've got a fun fact for that. Do you really? Yes. Okay. Synopsis. In pre-revolutionary Russia, <laughs> a Jewish peasant contends with marrying off three of his daughters while growing anti-Semitic sentiment threatens his village. I feel like the movie is very, like, that's such a good synopsis because it's, like, lighthearted. Marrying off his daughter is, like, anti-Semitic. Like, it's just, like, hard crash into seriousness <laughs> yeah, in the second sure. half. <laughs> Um, so it was an adaptation of the 1964 Broadway musical, the same name. Many devotees of the Broadway show were annoyed that Zero Mostel, who originated the role on Broadway, was not cast as Tevya in this film. The filmmakers decided that the film needed to be more authentic, so a more, quote, believable actor was hired, with Norman Jewison explaining... Quote, one reason I liked Topol's performance so much on the stage was that he projected his sense of destiny and pride in being a Jew. His Tevya never loses dignity and strength. He is a man who knows who he is and where he is going. I love that. I really like that, too. That's why I included it in here. Thank you. To the point you were going to make. Director Norman Jewison was brought into the project by executives at United Artists who thought he was Jewish. His first words to the executives upon meeting them were... You know I'm not Jewish, right? No way. <laughs> Jewish son is like your Jewish son. Your son of you know, like what? I'm I no name like, expert, but like that's how usually no how that one works. Know how to pick out a Jewish name at this? <laughs> they were just like, that's got the word Jew in it. We'll hire him. That's what it mean. Wouldn't it mean like son of Jew? But your their last names aren't Jew. You have to be like the last name. It's like oh. the first name or whatever. It's like the son of John Johnson or like the son of. Oh, you're right. Well, maybe the, so no one names their child. G. Well, someone did. And that's who he was the son of. I don't think that's how this worked. Back, you know, ancestors away. Probably. But then that would make him like Norwegian because that's where those kind of names come from. Ah, not Jewish, huh? Nope, not Jewish. I did not put a Jewish director in that role. Well, I thought they were. Fair. <laughs> you know, he should have never said anything. He almost lost a job, probably. I mean, I guess. I guess they were they were probably too you know, embarrassed Jewish, to be like, right? oh, well, yeah. then we'll fire Oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're just, no, we this know. Is just on merit alone. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Uh, That's hilarious. I thought it was funny. 
To get the look he wanted for the film, Jewison told director of photography Oswald Morris, who was famous for shooting color films in unusual styles, to shoot the film in an earthy tone. Morris saw a woman wearing brown nylon hosiery and thought, that's the tone we want. He asked the woman for the stockings on the spot and shot the entire film with a stock with the stocking over the lens. The weave can be detected in some scenes. Wow. Morris also shot the musical number Tevia's Dream in full color, which was then desaturated in post-production. Is that interesting? Yeah, I don't, you don't think you had to add that last tidbit, but... Uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, like the nylon thing is cool. Mm-hmm. It definitely has like a very... That's interesting. ...muddy look to it that I, you know, looks good. Right. Do you think they like harassed that woman? I mean, it was the 70s. I mean, who's to say? They're like, hey, toots! <laughs> Get your stockings yeah, off. Let me take those stockings. Oh, no. Let me explain. <laughs> see, it's for our picture. See? <laughs> We're going to... No, okay. I'm done. I'm just being mean, I think. I don't know. You are a little bit. I'll stop. Okay. Like, too mean? Should I edit it out? No, you're fine. Oh. So, that's, uh, that's Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Would you? Do you want me to start talking about it? I don't care. I'll talk about it. Talk about it. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Cool. Moving on. <laughs> so what do the critics say? <laughs> so you loved it. I did. I did too. Cool. I just say I had seen this before, but like when I was a child, I don't think I've seen it since I've been in double digits, mm-hmm. but, um, it's so good. Like going into it, I was kind of like, cause it's another like three hour long movie. Yeah. And I knew it's not like the most fun of musicals, you know, but it's so good. I think the performance of topple by Tavia is so amazing. It's so good. And it grounds that film in a way that I don't think anything else could. And I don't, I'm not saying anything against zero Mustel. I'm sure that he's great too. Sure. But I just, this movie rests so strongly on Topple's shoulders and he does such a good job that I really like, I can't imagine anyone else playing no, him. No, I couldn't either. Like, I don't, it's, you're right. It's a, it, he's a force to be reckoned with in this movie. I don't, I can maybe count a handful, two handfuls of other times where I've seen, you know, actors really inhabit a role so well. Yeah. And he is one of them in this role of Tevia. It's just incredible. It's it's worth the three-hour tag alone, you know? Absolutely. It doesn't even feel like three hours. It doesn't. You're right. You know, it's funny because we were watching it. And it's like 20 minutes in. We're like, well, we've heard all the good songs. I know. I'm like, that's like a lot of the songs yeah. that I love. Like, what's happening but in the But no, there are movie. great songs throughout. There were some we forgot. We are just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're like, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's one hell of a musical. It's probably my favorite musical adaptation. Yeah. Like, I think that's easy to say. I don't know about that because there's a lot of other musicals that I love, but I definitely think it's one of the better ones. And I think that I just think like topple. I really just feel like obviously you have to have a good Tevia for the show to work because mm-hmm. you have to balance funny with serious, with moving, which he does so well. And I honestly feel like he was nominated for an Oscar, but he lost to Gene Hackman from the French connection. And I'll get into the French connection more later. Emphasis on the hack. Right. But I'll just, I honest, like nothing against Gene Hackman, who is an incredible actor, but like he was incredible in lots of other things later. I'm just saying that like <laughs> Topple wasn't ever nominated again for an Oscar. And he like, right. I feel like he was robbed of this Oscar. I feel so too. He was so good. Perhaps the bet felt too safe. I don't know. I because mean, that movie, no, he, 
guys, it's I cannot stress enough. If there is one good reason to see that movie, it's just to just to to sit in amazement as as you watch Tobel's performance. It's it's something to behold. It is. It's amazing. I feel like. I feel like in this time, like they were trying to be cooler and so, like, giving it to a movie like The French Connection and someone right. like Gene no, Hackman. Right, no, I think 100% that's whereas, the case. Whereas, like, this is and more. And the last picture show took home two Oscars for the same reason. Right, I think. right. I think that they mm-hmm. were they were kind of moving away. Like, this is a, l- a lot darker than the musicals of, like, the 50s and 60s, obviously, in tone mm-hmm. and in subject right. matter. But it's still a musical. It's still singing and dancing and whatever else. Right. So I feel like they were a little shying away from that. Yeah, and aside from Topple, honestly, everyone else is really good too. Yeah. Um, outside of the, I didn't know some of the nylon stocking or whatever, but the image looks beautiful. It's a, it's a great color restoration. We probably watched a restored version. Yeah. I would imagine because it, it looked really good on our end. But there's so um, many cool, like it's shot very artistically too. Like I loved um, in the If I Were a Rich Man number mm-hmm. where he's like doing his little dance like up on the. By the way, his dance is everything. His dance is everything. Up on that like little raised platform, but every time he like stomps his foot, just like dust yeah. is like falling down. It looks and there's like sun coming in through the slats right. of the wood. It's beautiful. Right. And like you, you the wedding scene, you said there's nothing like weddings in seventies movies. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, you could, if it was the seventies, you put weddings in a movie. And they're all sad. <laughs> none, of, none of these are happy movies. They all throw a wedding in the beginning, and then it's yeah. all downhill from there. Man, I think the I think the seventies directors just had a poor outlook on marriage. <laughs> that, I think it's really what that's like a micro trend of the seventies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think there's something there though. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, and oh, also all wedding movies have to be like three hours. Apparently, that's also well, that's why they works. have time to shove in this what wedding. Are, we're really referring to just like what Godfather, Deer Hunter, this, yeah. That's it. <laughs> but it's a lot. Those are some quintessential movies. They're, you know, they are. So. They are. They're important. This one is equally as important, I would say. I would say it is. I'd say if you haven't seen it in a while, or if you've never seen it, watch right. it. If you're just, like, remembering the stage musical that your daughter was in in high school, I really encourage you to watch a better version. Yeah. And check out this movie. Yes. I can't I can't attest for the Broadway. I can't attest to it. I, I don't think I've ever... I think the... I don't think I've ever seen a stage version of that. I don't think you've seen Fiddler on stage, yeah. I'm trying to remember if I saw it when I was a kid, but I don't know. So it regardless doesn't matter. What I saw as a kid doesn't if count. If you can't remember it, <laughs> if you can't remember it, you might as well just say you that's didn't see true. it. Okay? That's true. That's true. And I'll I'll tell our listeners, so like I told you, one of my one of the mm-hmm. coolest when I was a kid, my mom we used to go to garage sales a lot. And one of my best finds was this music box that plays Sunrise Sunset. Do you still have it? Which I still have, yeah. It's at my parents' Where's house. That? But yeah. Bring it here. Okay. It doesn't need to collect dust over there. I've got it. It's holding the uh, handkerchief from my grandmother's wedding. That is beautiful. Mm-hmm. So Fiddler on the Roof, uh, as I said at the beginning, it won three Academy Awards, which included Best Music, Scoring Adaptation, and Original Song Score for Ranger Conductor John Williams. Awesome. That. This is like pre-super famous John Williams. I yeah, this, when he was probably, this was probably like his first... I don't know if it was first, but like he was starting no, out. Sure. He hadn't even met Steven Spielberg yet. Right. Like, do you think Star Wars would have been anything without his score? You know, that's hard to say because like the original. Or Jaws, for instance. Right. You just brought up Star. You just brought up Spielberg. Like Jaws. Yeah. Dude. Like that's iconic. That's iconic. But like, I don't know if Star Wars would work as well. 
Without such a fantastic score written right. by John Williams. It's like a very like cheesy movie. Yeah. And they hired a great Yeah, to and do then like it. the s- score is so good that you're just like, this like, is serious. It's probably the best decision Fox ever made. Like Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Just no, a little fine. just a little tidbit, side bit. For sure. Distraction. What do critics think of Fiddler? Did you already say that? No, but I'll let you know. Okay. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 92% and a critic score of 82%. Okay. Which, fine. As for its legacy, on the American Film Institute's list of 100 cheers, which is like inspirational movies, movies that make you feel good, whatever. Movies to add to another bullshit list. It's ranked at number 82. What is appalling to me is that it was not included on their list of the 25 greatest musicals of all time. Movie musicals. Interesting. Uh, blasphemous is what I, is the word I would use for it. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, no, I'm honestly surprised. No, I said interesting because I wonder if they're not looking at it as like a fully fledged musical. Why? Because running time compared to song count is kind of slim. I guess, but like it's a, Good. It has to be better than at least a few of the movies that they I mean, have I agree. on that I want to bust out this list. Pull it up right now. Let's do this one by one. one, by one. <laughs> Decide yep. if it's better than yep. each movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys have time for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the box office, it made $83.3 million, And like we said, it was the number one movie of the year. Which I do think is interesting, too. It's like, yeah, like, culture was changing a lot. And like obviously, some of those other movies, like French Connection, Clockwork Orange, Last Picture Show, also did very well. Mm-hmm. But like Fiddler on the Roof was still number one. Like people, which, but it's also a broader audience, obviously, because you bring kids to right, it. Right, right. The whole family movie. can go. It's not yeah. excluding anybody. But it's, I'm just saying. Right. Just I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Okay. Okay. Moving on to a film that is not appropriate for the whole family. A Clockwork Orange, directed by Stanley Kubrick and distributed by Warner Brothers. Synopsis. In the future, a statistic... In the year 2000... It's statistic instead of sadistic. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, that's funny. Synopsis. In the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct aversion experiment. But it doesn't go as planned. It's <laughs> probably not the inflection they... We're envisioning for that sentence. It's based on the Anthony Burgess 1962 novel of the same name. In the United States, A Clockwork Orange was rated X in its original release in 1972. Later, Kubrick voluntarily replaced approximately 30 seconds of sexually explicit footage from two scenes with less explicit action for an R rating re-release in 1973. Current DVDs present the original version reclassified with an R rating, and only some of the early 1980s VHS editions are the edited version. Oh, okay. Which I think is interesting. So it's also like one of the... One of only two movies with an original rating of X to be nominated for an Academy Award. The other oh, so when it was nominated, Midnight it got Cowboy. an X. Yeah. Oh, wait. So when it was released, it had an X. Yeah. It didn't get the R rating. It didn't, wasn't uh, right, edited and re-released until 73. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yes. Um, what a hype builder, too. Yeah. I do feel like that was definitely wait, part it of it. wait. It was on the top 10. Yeah. Well, I wonder what they did, because I know my parents talk about uh, with Midnight Cowboy, it was rated X, and they went yeah. to go see it here in, in Rockford, Illinois. And they were like, they left the theater being like, I don't understand why that movie's rated X. But certain theaters edited, they like cut out the scenes that made that movie rated X. Uh So I wonder if they did that with A Clockwork Orange too. If like 
they some theaters mm. didn't show the full things. Although I also read that Stanley Kubrick like was illegal. like was f- afraid of that, and so he would like require the film to be replaced every week so he could make sure that the studio the theaters weren't doing that. So maybe that's not what they did. Huh. I don't know. He had he had that kind of power back then. Well, this is right after like 2001, right? Yeah. So maybe. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a number one that year? We'll see. I don't know. We haven't gotten to that yet. Top 10. Cool though. Uh, So one of the most famous scenes, Alex performing singing in the rain as he attacks the writer and his wife was not scripted. (laughs) Stanley Kubrick spent four days experimenting with the scene, finding it too conventional. Eventually he approached Malcolm McDowell and asked him if he could dance. They tried the scene again, this time with McDowell dancing and singing the only song he could remember. Kubrick was so amused that he swiftly bought the rights to Singing in the Rain for $10,000. When Malcolm McDowell met Gene Kelly at a party several years later, the older star turned and walked away in disgust. Kelly was deeply upset with the way his signature from Singing in the Rain had been portrayed in a clockwork Why did he sell it? I don't think he owned it. Oh, okay. I'm sure it was out of our studio. Yeah had it but i mean singing in the rain i think is like gene kelly's signature song so i can understand why he would not want it used in a scene of violence sure it totally changes its meaning right yes um yeah i wonder who did, like does kubrick's estate still own that i don't know like, i don't know where this goes let's follow the song you know let's follow the money <laughs> yeah that's interesting yeah um here's something you were asking about a possible explanation of the title oh okay so After aversion therapy, Alex behaves like a good member of society, though not through choice. His goodness is involuntary. He has become the titular clockwork orange, organic on the outside, mechanical on the inside. I hate that. Okay. Well, that's all I could find (laughs) about why it might be called Well, thank you for the effort. Sure. I mean, I saw a lot of things where, like, uh, Anthony Burgess, who wrote the novel, claims that it's, like, Cockney rhyming slang. And then, like, everyone else who knows Cockney is like, that's not true. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe he's just on drugs. I'm going to attribute it to drugs. Possibly. Uh, Two copycat crimes in London led to Kubrick withdrawing the film in the UK. It was nearly impossible to see the film in the United Kingdom until Kubrick's death in 1999. Wow. Uh, Despite praise from many critics, the film had detractors. In her New Yorker review titled Stanley Strange Love, Pauline Kael called it pornographic because of how it dehumanized Alex's victims while highlighting the suffering of its protagonist. Kael described Kubrick as, quote, a bad pornographer, noting the Billy Boys gang extended stripping of the very buxom woman they intended to rape, claiming it was offered for titillation. Along with... Films such as Bonnie and Clyde, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch, Soldier Blue, Dirty Harry, and Straw Dogs, this film is considered a landmark in the relaxation of control on violence in the cinema. As far as its lasting legacy goes. Okay. What do you think? I have conflicted feelings about this movie. I'd never seen it before. And I am not... But I mean, like, I obviously I'd seen, like certain scenes i like knew some things about it and obviously like when people dress up like him for halloween i understood what that was about but i'm not a person i don't like violence of any kind like i'm not it makes me feel sick like i don't like it i don't want to i don't want to see it so the first like 20 minutes of this movie (laughs) were real rough real rough 
because it is like punches you in the face with how brutal it is. But so I feel like it like instantly put me on edge where I was just like, I don't like this. Mm -mm. And, uh, but like, as it gets into it, like when he goes into prison and starts doing the treatment and whatever else, like, I think that kind of stuff was interesting to me. I think it had some very interesting things to say about, um, humanity and our choices and free will and that kind of stuff. And that's like a discussion that I enjoy. And I think that the film did deal with those things fairly well. And I think that obviously stylistically it is brilliant. Like I think that it looks great. There's obviously, I also like really love this like seventies version of the future. That's still like so seventies, but I like really love it (laughs) for sure. It's just a great like looking movie. Um, it's just like getting past those for like the first 20 minutes. And I also think that unfortunately a product of its time being in the seventies, there is a lot of objectification of women in it, even outside of like the rape scenes and that kind of stuff. I do kind of, that's why I included that quote from Pauline Kael. Cause I do kind of agree that a lot of it is offered up as tit- titillation as opposed to like, this is, awful where it still like is awful and still like makes you feel awful. But I don't know if it makes like, it makes me feel awful as a woman. I don't know mm. about other stuff. And I think like, there's a lot when they're doing the like test, like showing him off how he like gets sick or whatever now in front of everybody. And they like that topless woman is there like the way that they shoot her, like, so like there's some cool shots for sure. But like, there's a lot of shots where her face is not even in it, which is like the definition of objectifying women or just like turning them into objects. And so like that kind of stuff. Kind I would of argue like, that's from Alex's POV though. So it kind of fits that. Yeah. Shot. Do you know what I mean? I get that. Because, but yeah. But then, there, but like then there's scenes like me. Pauline Kale referred to where that woman is just being like, Handed around before yeah. she's supposed it goes rape. on for so, so long. long, yeah. And like, I don't know if it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It maybe it made me be uncomfortable because I'm like, why are we still watching this? Yeah, like it didn't put me into the shoes as far as like, I don't know. It didn't. I I had to step out even from knowing the fact that she's a victim to just question the director. Yeah. At that point. Do you know what I mean? It took me Mm -hmm. out of the movie for how long it stayed on that. Yeah. I also read a questionable thing about how Stan, like when they were auditioning women to be the girl in that humiliation scene or whatever. And so it was like actresses. He would like have them recite something like be topless and recite something. And then he had like just took pictures of their bare breasts, which he then turned into a book that he could just like flip through in his office. I'm like, well, that's, that's cool. (laughs) different time man i mean it doesn't i mean that's as a, like i feel that, like no as of a year ago it was probably still stuff no, like that was still happening well for sure right something we don't hear about definitely fetishy like that's not just a quirk like that's it was weird he okay so i'm just i mean and that's i mean i didn't know that while i was watching the film so it's not like that had anything right. to do with that but like right but yeah that's how i feel like to sum up <laughs> In conclusion, I've jumped around a bit. So. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, I just feel like conflicted about it. I think that it does a lot of things well, but I just think that like, it's not, it's not a movie that's ever gonna like fully appeal to me, just because it's not. I just don't like violence, and this is ultra violence. Right, right. All right, so I'm gonna attack it from a place of I have seen it before, um, 
I don't really care for it. I think it's minor Kubrick. Uh, I hate, like, I'm just going to, I have to bring outside stuff in. I can't just watch this subjectively, but like, I hate that it, there's like a culture associated with it. Like, yeah, people do dress up like Alex. Mm-hmm. I think that's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's fucking, there's even bands devoted to like that kind of culture it definitely is like a cult film for sure right and not to mention a million other things probably too but uh yeah like you know i don't mind the beginning at all i don't really mind the violence i don't really mind that because he he is getting he is going to get punished he is going to be fixed he gets desensitized to seeing these things much like i think that what the film is trying to do to us to put us in alex's shoes where we're also becoming desensitized because it's just showing us in his raw brutality because at that time, you could start showing more things. Mm-hmm. Whereas like before, the studios didn't let you do that. I mean, right. the fact that this got an X rating is actually genius. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's just not that good to me. Like, I don't really care. Yeah. You know, I found it weird. I was like looking at a lot of things and there was a lot of talk about... Um, the sympathy that you feel for Alex and how like this film, like one of the strengths is like that it makes you sympathize with someone like Alex, which I found so confusing. Cause I was like, I did not feel a shred of sympathy for that man. Like, right. I don't know. I feel like in a way he always felt in control in a way. So yeah. What, where does the sympathy supposed to come in? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, I honestly feel like movies like this and also when we're talking about like French connection, these like this idea of like an anti-hero was very new then so i feel like at this time audience scores were just like conditioned to see the protagonist as a sympathetic figure whether they actually deserve okay. that sympathy but or not alex isn't even like an anti-hero he's no like, i don't think he's, he's an anti-hero i'm just saying just that like a villain. he's a villain <laughs> but i think that like no i know what you're saying they're though. like conditioned to be like oh well he's the main character so i must right, feel right. for him i don't think i don't think kubrick ever intended any sort of sympathy for that guy no I don't like, think I really so. don't that think that's intention. what it was all like. If anything, he was making a political statement, which I think is why he got really upset when there started to be copycat crimes and that kind of stuff. And that's why he withdrew the film in England and Britain, yeah. because I think I don't think he ever saw this as like a way to inspire people to violence. No. I think he saw it as no, a way no, no. to like deter violence. I think it was you exa- know? Yeah, exactly. It was supposed to be a, not, not a sensitized, not a titular thing, actually, right. which, okay, again, further, further analyzation there needs to happen. But I do think he was trying to, show you that you know these things i don't know i don't know i don't want to really like i don't know but i, I definitely think he was way. uncomfortable with some of the ways people right express their right. enjoyment of this movie <laughs> right like again and i guess yeah i have the same feeling like i mean i'm glad i didn't make it but like i hate that it has inspired like cultures of people yeah admiring this sort of behavior of this style i will as say far like as dress yeah, I mean, as far as, like, style goes, like, on a visual level, it's a cool look. Like, the all-white with the, like, false eyelashes on one eye is just, like, it is, like, a cool look. I'm not going to lie. You're part of the problem, Devin. <laughs> I'm not ever going to dress up like it for Halloween because I've never gone out for Halloween. But, like, it just, it is, it is, like, the opening shot of him, like, him, like, staring at the camera is like a cool shot. Yeah. And it looks really cool. We're not saying it's bad. We're saying we don't like it. I'm just saying like, yeah. <laughs> but I also like on Halloween, like people dress up like Hannibal no, Lecter I'm, or like whatever. Like Hannibal Lecter's cool. Like who the fuck doesn't love Hannibal Lecter? No one's like, I hate Hannibal Lecter. Doesn't he like eat people? Yes, but he's so fucking charming. Have you, 
Oh, you haven't? I have not seen Silence of the Lambs. But uh, coming we'll get, up in a few weeks. We'll get to it later. No, baby, trust me. Everyone loves Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Okay, like, but that's not a thing. Right, now, well, if you dress up like Buffalo Bill, you got like, a weird choice, you know? Yeah, I'm saying people dress up as villains on Halloween is all I'm saying. I know, but they're usually cool villains. Darth Vader. What are, people Can't dress think up of as any like more villains. the devil. Devil's cool. Can be cool. I sound crazy now. <laughs> but it's like a funny devil, you know? It's not like... Sure. Beelzebub. It's like I got a red. I'm like the devil on the shoulder. Devil is what that costume is. People dress up as like, give me that like one. John Wayne Gacy. Who doesn't love a clown? Okay, I'm done. John Wayne Gacy's victims. <laughs> That's terrible. That's true. Yeah. Um. I don't wow, remember what we were talking about. <laughs> that was a, we were talking about a clock. We're going. Why don't you tell us some unique facts about it? Sure. I mean, critics things. I knew what you meant. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 93%. It would. And a critic score of 89%. Hmm. <clears throat> As for its legacy, on the American Film Institute's original list of the 100 best films, it was ranked number 46. And on the anniversary list, 10 years later, it was bumped down to number 70. On their list <clears throat> of the greatest heroes and villains, Alex is ranked as the number 12 villain. On their lists of 100. Thank you. Yes. On the list of 100 greatest thrills, it's ranked at number 21. On their 10 top 10 list, it was ranked as the number four sci-fi film. And in the British Film Institute's 2012 Sight and Sound poll of the world's greatest films, it was ranked 75th in the director's poll and 235th in the critics poll. Okay. So some people consider it. Sure. Important. Yep. At the box office, uh, it made twenty six point six million in North America. Okay. Moving on to the winner of Best Picture for nineteen seventy two. The French Connection by William Friedkin, produced by Twentieth Century Fox. Synopsis, you ask. Adi. A pair of NYC cops in the narcotics bureau stumble onto a drug smuggling job with a French connection. <laughs> I was putting on my little like sunglasses, CSI Miami style. <laughs> <laughs> the screenplay was written by Ernest tidy man. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. <laughs> I think it's titty man. <laughs> it is based on Robin Moore's 1969 nonfiction book, the French connection, a true account of cops, narcotics and international conspiracy. At the time, this was the first R rated movie to win best picture since the introduction of the MPAA rating system. Subsequently, Midnight Cowboy, which won in 1970, has been reduced from an X rating to an R rating, making it the current first R-rated movie to win Best Picture. That is all I have about The French Connection. Really? Yeah. Damn. Uh, yeah. Am I, I don't know if I'm just sorry, if I'm just tired. I feel like I'm kind of having an allergy attack. Oh, no. Yeah. So sorry if the energy is low. Um, the okay. French Connection, however, yes. was a movie I have been actually dying to see for a long time. I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. I bought the, like, the, the combo pack of that and the French Connection 2, which does exist. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. 
There was another connection somewhere. <laughs> there was the another French. French connection. Yes. Well, they didn't catch that one guy, so. Oh, okay. So, yeah, maybe they caught him in the second one. I don't know. No, I can't don't. really tell you. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I've been waiting to see it for a long time. Always had good, good things about it. You know, gritty, nice, good, gritty cop drama. Yep. Um, Devin, I don't know how to put it, but. Yes. I was let down. Yes. You agree? I would agree. I would say, again, this is a movie where, like, I'd heard a bunch about it before. Like, what a great movie it is and blah, blah, sure. blah. And, again, I wasn't, like, anxious to see it. But I was, like, looking forward to watching it when we sat down to watch it. Uh-huh. And then I was like, oh, this is not what I was expecting. Right. It just, it had so many good elements. Yes. Like, I've really grown to, like, William Friedkin as a director, although I hadn't seen this movie, the one that put him on the map to begin with. Yeah. On the movie map, he did a lot in television. But, like... Gene Hackman, fantastic actor. Roy Schreider, fantastic. Love him. Yes. Put out, pull all of them together, and you get some kind of like mixed mashed movie that maybe is, you know, gritty and dark and and cool, but doesn't ever really connect on a. Yeah. I, I, I didn't get a connection, I guess. <laughs> I, you know, uh, French or otherwise. For, yeah, for real. Uh, it just never felt. I never felt attached to it. Um, I'm wondering if this book. I didn't realize it was based on a on a nonfiction book. Yeah, it's a true story. The book has got to be more fucking interesting than this movie. Yeah, well, I, I do want to say sorry. No, there are some great scenes that obviously the book probably couldn't do as well, oh, uh, including sure. the subway, uh, the you know the in and out of the doors, which is like honestly that was fantastic. That was a great scene. And the infamous car chase scene. But other than that, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's dirty and it's cool in some ways, but those things don't, I don't know, they don't add up to a, to a good film and, and especially a best picture winner. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, kind of like what I was saying before, I feel like this movie is one of the first instances where you have like anti-heroes as the protagonist because Gene Hackman and Roy Schneider's characters are, I feel like to us, it's become such a cliche to have these like tough cops who are willing to do anything to catch the person, even if like they have to break a few laws or whatever, like that kind of thing has become so cliche, but I understand like at this time that wasn't something you were seeing a lot of. So it probably was like, what? And, um, it was probably like more representative of the way cops were in New York and blah, blah, blah. But, the problem, I think that like the problem with watching it now is that there's been so many new variations on this type of story and they've improved upon the genre. Whereas this was the starting block and they hadn't gotten it quite right yet because I think the main problem with it is that, yeah, they're, they're, you know, these super dedicated cops who are going to do anything to catch these people, but you never get any character development there's never any explanation of why they're so obsessed with catching these people by any means necessary to the point where i don't they're so unsympathetic especially to modern eyes in the way that i mean it starts with them just like harassing this black guy for no apparent reason they continue to harass um black men people of color um hispanic people like Ever, like any chance that they get and like there's so many racial slurs being thrown around and blah, blah blah and that's fine those are the characters that they are you know i'm not gonna say that you can't if that's really what people are like or like whatever else i'm not saying that you can't make that as a character choice i'm just saying that there's no reason 
to like these characters. There's no reason to like, you never understand why they're so committed to what they're doing that they'd be willing to uh, like break the rules and all this other kind of stuff. And I just feel like if there was any sort of character development that would have like let me into knowing why they were this way, like maybe I would have been more on board with it as opposed to the supposed like bad guys of this movie who are drug dealers and whatever. They're smuggling drugs into the country. But like, I mean, I don't know. To me, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me that they'd be like this ups, like the links that they go to to catch these guys doesn't seem to match the crime to me because <laughs> it's just like okay they didn't, they're not like murdering people like why don't we just like well okay fine drugs are bad i'm not saying that heroin is like good i'm just saying that, i think like, the thing is is like that was really good stuff right yeah and it's gonna be mixed with a bunch of bad stuff by the new york city drug dealers sure do you know what i mean like yeah. it's not no they're trying fair. to stop it at the source rather than i know but like i just wish there was like some sort of reasoning as to why they were such dirty cops. Yeah. I wish there was any sort of like, sure. This movie felt real and you know what I mean? And like, it felt more like a documentary at sometimes than a mm -hmm. fiction movie. I'm sure these were the arguments back then. Right. And like, maybe that's what felt original. And I mean, that's done now. It's a, it's its own genre in, in many ways. Yeah. You know, I don't it's know, that for style sure. of movie, right? I mean, now it's like a TV show on, you know, basic cable. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So, right. But where a cable show has its advantages, you can have long character arcs. True. This, you you don't, you don't. Again, like, I think that's the, the biggest thing that hurts this movie is, yeah, the lack of characters. It's not even a character study. No. We were talking earlier about Last Picture Show. Very little plot, but we're linked by these characters. Mm -hmm. This is the exact opposite. Like, there's some plot. But that's there's not all. a lot of plot. Well, there is, though. I think I disagree. I think the the way this case unfolds is the plot. That's that's what's stringing the whole thing together. Yeah, but it's like pretty but straightforward. It's, just, it's not like there's exact, a lot. Of no, exactly. But that's the problem. So then we're just being like zigzagged through it mm -hmm. and not really getting any real answers. Not exactly getting to know who these people are. We don't feel as a part of it. We just feel like we're watching it with like one eye half open. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I feel like there are definitely like iconic scenes and sequences in this film that deserve every accolade that they've ever been given. Like the car chase scene is fantastic. Probably one of the best car chase scenes in any movie. The scene you're talking about with, um, going in and out of the subway train, like cars, beautiful. So well done. So great. The scene where they're like ripping apart the car is oh, that's fantastic great. Too, yeah. But I just feel like they're like really great set pieces connected by like tiny little strings of quality you know what i mean it's just like right. we just need to get to this next really cool thing and like it doesn't matter what like, that connective tissue is it honestly felt like william freakin was ordered to like cut out all of the slow stuff or something mm. so he got rid of all the character development scenes yeah and just had this like action this moving forward plot wise and, and that's what you got it actually right. well, it's either that or it just felt totally amateurish that and it happened to work yeah. Oh, well, and it feel. could be because it was like, if it's him starting out, he like obviously had his moments of brilliance with some of those scenes, but like maybe he was still figuring out how to do the rest of it, you know? Right. I mean, well, yeah, I think it was, I think it was a second, first, second feature, second feature technically, I think. Yeah. But yeah, first on a budget for sure. But I have to say too, like these are based, these characters are based on real people who I assume 
are like complex human beings like most people are. So it just seems like the information was there to make these well-developed characters and they just like chose not to. Right. <laughs> Which is, it's just, un, it's, you know, unfortunate, but. Right. What my are, what my do we favorite know? thing that I think is going to stick with me from this movie though is Gene Hackman's fascination with these women in boots, which is never explained. And it could be like as simple as, well, we assume that these prostitutes are wearing these high of boots. Sure. Maybe he's got a thing for prostitutes or whatever. <laughs> but I don't want to take that as an excuse. I think he's really into boots on women. He's just, that's his thing. That's his thing. And I, I love that it's not explained. And that's what I'm going to choose. That's your character development? Yeah. Okay. Well, not development. It's just a fact. Just- Sure. It's a little background information. Sure. Well, we didn't have any other background information, so you have to, to find out where you can get it. Sure. He's Doyle. He doesn't like being in the cold. Who does? <laughs> he really dislikes people of any ethnic background. I can yes, tell you that. Yes, he does. He's quite the racist. <laughs> yes. He doesn't even like the French. No. He doesn't like anybody, really. He really doesn't like anyone. He keeps himself, mostly. He likes his partner. But he got his last partner killed. So, like, yeah. really? He might not even like that guy. That's true. I don't know the details on this. He, like, straight up killed another cop, too, at the end. He sure did. And it was he, just like... He sure did. Too quick to fire. Yep. He was all like, shoot first, ask questions later. Yep. Anywho, what'd you think? Oh, wait, you're, yeah, you're yeah, already talked. Okay. So, let me tell you what other That was the thought. best picture winner of 2000... Yeah. I mean, whoa. <laughs> 1971. Two... Well, the 72 ceremony. Bus. 72 ceremony. We got to, hey, we got to stick to the, we can't. We have to commit to this, yeah. to the way that we're doing this. We already this. did it. We're sticking with it. Thanks for sticking with us if you have. Yeah. And also, if like. If you haven't, then you suck. But you'll never hear it because you didn't stick with us. So, see what I did? You know what I mean? I wasn't really listening to what you were saying. It's okay. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, those Best Picture winner. Who won? I think that he won for Best Director, too. Yeah, William Friedkin won Best Director as well. And Gene Hackman won Best Actor. Over Topol. Which is ridiculous. Yes. So, yeah, Rotten Tomato audience score of 87% and a critic score of 98%. As for its legacy on the American Film Institute's original list of the 100 Best Films, it ranked at number 70 and 10 years later on the anniversary list, it was dropped to number 93. It was ranked number eight on the list of 100 thrills and uh, on the list of heroes and villains. Whoa. Popeye was ranked the number 44 hero. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I feel like they needed to rewatch that. Right. In 2012, the editors guild ranked it as the 10th best edited film of all time. And it was preserved in the national film registry in 2005. At the box office, it made $51.7 million. It was the second highest grossing film of the year. Awesome. So there we go. So now it's time to ask the question that this entire podcast is based upon. Did the Academy get it right? Kyle. Me first? Yeah. No. They did not get it right. They got a lot wrong, actually. <laughs> they got a lot wrong. <laughs> Um, my personal pick for, I think the best movie of 1971, uh, would be Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. It's the only one I've named in this podcast as a masterpiece. Therefore, I think it should go to the front of the list. Um, yeah, in fact, I could keep Fiddler and do without 
any of the other movies. Is that how we just do like it? existing at all? Yep. Oh, no, wow. I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this turned brutal no, real it's like, fast. That's like our, the film spotting we listen yeah. to. It's just like if, you, if one of these movies had to exist the rest of the time. Yeah. No, uh, I think Fiddle on the Roof, though, is just Fiddle on the Roof is just, again, I, I said masterpiece. I mean masterpiece. I would highly recommend it to anybody, literally anybody. My grandma, my little cousin, like you can all watch it and enjoy it. Yes. Okay. What about you, Devin? Um, well, I agree that the Academy did not get it right in many aspects. Um, as far as best picture goes, for me, I think I would name the last picture show as the best of these five nominees with Fiddler on the Roof being a very, very, very close second. Don't try to. No, I'm you don't just, get to do that. Well, I did. I did it. I did it. Ugh. It happened. It's done. Mm. I agree with the reason with Fiddler. I just think last picture show, um, has a lot going for it. And I think it's like, I don't know. I just think the performance, like all the performances are superb. It's a great story. It's timeless. It's encapsulating of this time as well though. And then. Right. So would you recommend it to your grandma? My grandmother's dead. Oh, sorry. Um, moving on. I mean, I would, re- I mean, one, probably your no, grandparents have already I, seen it. I'm just joking. <laughs> they have. They've seen both these movies for sure. Probably in the cinemas. I know my mom said she it's really liked the out. last picture show, so. Good. She's like. Oh, <laughs> how much does she weigh, Devin? <laughs> what? Oh, I thought you were about to say her age. No. <laughs> oh, what were, you, what were you about to say? Nothing. I'm just saying that like, oh. she. She really liked it, so I could recommend it. I, I mean, if my parents hadn't seen it, I would recommend it to them. Oh, okay. They all, she also loves Feather on the Roof, so I mean. Which one would you choose? I don't know. In a battle to the death. I, I guarantee it'd be Fiddler. Probably Fiddler. She loves musicals. Yeah. Uh, no, I, th- I think that's an admirable choice, obviously. Regardless, I think we can both agree that Topple should have won over Gene Hackman for Best Actor. 100%. We can agree on that. Full up thievery going on by right. Gene Hackman. Taking nice. Topple's things. I want to get like a shirt that just says Topple over Hackman. Oh, and yeah. Just see if anybody ever gets it. Like, that, would be, that would be my goal. I want someone to be like, that is the greatest shirt of all time. And I'd be like, you're fucking right. Let's be best friends forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Agreed. Well, one thing the Academy, I think, did get right was their choice of best song, which was the theme from Shaft. Which, which we played at the beginning of the show. We played at the beginning of the show. But throughout the show, I've decided to change the end. Oh, okay. Song. Okay. You tell See, them. See, Devin was about to say we were also going to go out on Shaft. Yeah, you know because what? it was the correct choice. No, yeah. And it's a great song. Um, however, you're not going to hear it twice on this podcast. Okay. What are we going to hear instead? Because we are going to go out on Malcolm McDowell's version. Oh, no. <laughs> of Singing in the Rain. An iconic musical moment in film. Which I said sarcastically, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Adios. All right. So wait. Oh. Real quick. Oh, sorry. We'll be back next week with a bonus episode of some other supplemental films that came out in 1971 that were not nominated for Best Picture. Because that's how we're going to do it now. That's how we're doing it, it now. Instead of doing a two-hour podcast of <laughs> our five movies plus our supplementals, we're going to do two two-hour podcasts. <laughs> right. <laughs> making our original show longer and then doing a no. Uh no, just to kind of divide it up and spread out spread out our seasons a little bit more for yes. you guys. So you look care. for that next week. We'll be talk do you, should we tell them what movies we're doing? Yeah. We'll be watching Harold and Maud, Clute, and Carnal Knowledge. Tune in. See you then.
Oh. <laughs>